0: Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is the Maritime Ireland radio show about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Fundamental parts of Ireland, socially and economically. The sea around our coastline, the inland waters, our lakes, rivers and streams are all part of Ireland's marine sphere and vitally important to this island nation. Ireland's connection with the sea is as old as time itself. So on Maritime Ireland, we discuss and report on all aspects of the marine sphere, bringing together the Maritime community, which everyone is welcome to join. Maritime Ireland is broadcast on 18 radio stations around Ireland and on podcast. I never knew that shellfish are vegetarians, which I learned from Joe Silk, Director of Marine Environment and Food Safety Services at the Marine Institute, as we discussed the network which the institute is developing to protect shellfish from toxin threats such as the red tide and phytoplankton in the water are also very important.
1: Phytoplankton are at the bottom of the food chain, so this is very important. It's the food that shellfish feed upon, and shellfish are actually vegetarian. They eat the plant algae. Phytoplankton also produce most of the oxygen that we breathe on the planet.
0: So, another thing I learned. Phytoplankton are vitally important to us humans. And if you're wondering what happens to the oxygen they produce when shellfish eat them, listen on for more from Joe Silk. I also have an answer to a question about lifeboats.
2: Why are lifeboats orange? And of which it seems so obvious a topic that you ask yourself why you never thought to find out in the first place.
0: The Marine Institute, whose headquarters are at Rinville on the edge of Galway Bay, working with 10 other European research institutes, has developed a marine toxin warning network so that the shellfish industry throughout Europe will be prepared and ready to detect potential emerging toxins. It's called the Alert Tox Net. Over 75,000 people work in the aquaculture sector in Europe, and its products are valued at nearly €5 billion a year. It's a developing industry providing vital employment, particularly in coastal locations. I first heard about the red tide toxin many years ago when it appeared in West Cork and became a big challenge to aquaculture. Joe Silk, the Director of Marine Environment and Food Safety Services at the Marine Institute, told me it's actually a natural phenomenon.
1: It is, and that red coloration that sometimes appears in the sea is from plankton in, in the water. Uh, in the plankton, these are the plants and animals that float around in ocean currents, uh, but the plankton is broken up into two main groups the animals, which is called zooplankton, and plants, which are called phytoplankton. The phytoplankton, the plants, uh, sometimes, they, they, like in the summer on the land, they, they grow and you can get blooms of them in the sea and the way that we see them uh, when we look at the water we can sometimes see a greenish tinge to the water uh, but they also can produce many different colors and those red tides come from uh, you know just big blooms of of phytoplankton in the water it's a purely natural event and it's part of their life cycle uh, but it can be quite dramatic when we see it from land
0: shellfish are feeding at the bottom from this then so obviously they're filtering what they intake
1: exactly Uh, phytoplankton are as I said the, the bottom of the food chain so this is very important it's the food that shellfish feed upon Phytoplankton also produce most of the oxygen that we breathe on the planet, so it's very, very important to keep the planet healthy. Uh, at the bottom of the food chain, though, they are producing a lot of vegetative matter, and shellfish are actually vegetarian. They eat the plant algae in the water, they filter out these microscopic plants that are floating, and that, that is their food. So it's a very nutritious source for shellfish to feed upon, uh, and that's that's where they get all their nutrition from. But just as on the land, there are a number of species that are toxic. We know that you know land plants there's a small number of of plants that produce toxins and that can be harmful and it's the same in the sea again it's a purely natural thing but you know there's certain species of phytoplankton that produce toxins and when they're prevalent in the water they can be transferred into shellfish uh, and shellfish can pick up the toxicity from them temporarily Uh, And the shellfish then become unsafe to eat. So in the Marine Institute, we have uh, a weekly programme where we're testing all of the shellfish production areas around the coast of Ireland to ensure that shellfish is is just at the top quality, to make sure that there's no uh, problems with them before they go to market. Uh, And we run that programme year round to to ensure that all of our shellfish is, is safe before it goes to human consumers.
0: And that tests waters incoming to the bay, and I believe we even have satellite availability.
1: Yeah, exactly. We we test the first of all the water to see what species of phytoplankton are in the water to make sure that they're they're safe, uh, and if we detect any toxic species in the. This is a microscopic uh, analysis of the water. If we detect any toxic species, then we also test the shellfish to ensure that they have not picked up any toxins from them. And this is all governed by EU legislation. There are levels above which we cannot put shellfish on the market. So once the shellfish start to approach those, those levels, uh, the area is closed down temporarily. Fortunately, shellfish—you know—they will come around again once the the species and the, like the cycle of nature, the species change in the sea. Uh, so we we get non-toxic phytoplankton replacing the toxic ones. Uh, the shellfish feed upon them; they flush themselves out, and they become safe again to eat. So all is not lost once the shellfish go toxic. It's it's a generally uh, a, a, a temporary closure uh, to ensure that you know human consumers are kept safe.
0: And because it's a natural uh, repeating phenomenon, as you say, that's why the new Alert Talks NET project, which you've been combining with 10 other European partners, gives warning in advance really to be, enable aquaculturists, fish farmers to respond and to know that this natural phenomenon might be occurring.
1: Yeah, it's important for the aquaculture industry to know in advance if their uh, project is going to be safe to put on the market. So we have a number of, of research projects looking at trying to predict what is going to happen over the next few weeks. Uh, and that uh, advanced knowledge is very important for the industry. I'm very fortunate in Ireland in that we have our monitoring program, which is year-round. So that gives us the, the trends. We can see whether uh, levels are going up or down. We can combine that then with mathematical models looking at the water flow in and out of bays and whether blooms are being transferred from one area to another and we can predict on the basis of that. And also, more recently, we then have satellite information as well coming from uh, satellites that that take photographs of the sea and we can see levels of chlorophyll, we can see the sea temperature, the water movement. And putting all of this together then, we're able to make a, a very good estimate of what is likely to happen and whether
3: areas are likely to close or or remain
0: open. And finally, Joe, that's extremely important for coastal communities in Ireland and indeed across Europe because of the important value now of aquaculture generally in terms of the amount of people employed and the economic value.
1: Exactly. Uh, Level of uh, activity in coastal communities is is very important and some of it is driven by the aquaculture uh, industry. So the Um, The most recent BIM report has indicated that some 51 million euros is generated uh, from shellfish aquaculture uh, around the coast. And while that's not a a huge amount, um, it is very important in the locations where it's It's carried out in some of the the coastal villages and towns where where there is shellfish uh, farming. There aren't too many other options. So this is very important for the local economy and very important that we're able to support that by, you know, the most advanced science that we have uh, and to help the shellfish industry in producing shellfish that is safe and can go on the market uh, and attract very high uh, and premium amounts.
0: Joseph, third director of Marine Environment and Food Safety Services at the Marine Institute, and an important development for aquaculture, the development of the Alert ToxNet Marine Toxin Warning Network. And isn't it great to hear that Irish marine researchers are involved in leading such development? And remember. Shellfish are vegetarians and phytoplankton are vital generators of the oxygen we humans need. We've reported and discussed on the Maritime Ireland radio show the necessity to protect dolphins, whales and other marine species. This month the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority is running a project that it says is in support of an updated EU regulation aimed at protecting dolphin, porpoise and whale populations during fishing activity. The Naval Service will be monitoring at sea and the SFPA at landing points. Now let's look at protecting our beaches from pollution. The commitment of 300 people in East Cork who do this is impressive, indeed amazing. They're members of the voluntary Ballynamona Clean Coast group. It's the largest of these groups in Ireland and has taken many tonnes of litter and debris off 40 kilometres of beaches in their area, for which it has won several awards. With the support of funding from the FLAG project, that's the Fisheries Local Action Group, and the sale of equipment it already had, the Ballynemona Group has acquired a €25,000 tractor to help pull heavy litter from the beaches. Tidal movements bring litter in from the sea, but there's also the human problem. That's the dirty, inconsiderate people who visit beaches then leave their litter behind. Francius Otuma is the founder of the Ballynamona Group and told Justin Maher about their work and their new acquisition.
3: It's incredibly important to, I suppose, the work that we do because we're working on over 40 kilometres of the coastline. The type of litter, the type of debris, the type of uh, material that washes in can be often quite heavy. Maybe it might be a very old discarded fishing net. Sometimes they're embedded in the sand or they have lots of sand in them. Um, And so I suppose to get them up and off the beach because, look, this summer is going to be a really important summer for every business in East Cork, no matter what you do. Because when our hotels and B&Bs and restaurants and pubs all open, the influx of visitors that will come to East Cork, and if they're going to go for a walk on the beach or for a meal afterwards or they're staying locally, you know, I suppose it adds to the visitor experience for one part. The, The economic reasons for that part alone this year would be paramount. But also, I suppose that this kind of type of litter isn't washing back out into the sea um, and acting as ghost nets. On top of that, our volunteers range in ages from 4 to 84. And if um, someone manages to start walking a kilometre up the beach... And bags start getting very heavy because an empty bottle isn't just an empty bottle because, you know, with the tide, it'll fit with water, there'll be sand in the water. These bottles and containers and items of clothing or debris can get really heavy. So trying to carry heavy bags over soft sand in larger distances can be quite difficult. This is going to enable us to carry out much more work. And I suppose if, if any of our volunteers become ill or hurt themselves, you know it's great we have a 100% safety record in our seven years of operating. But look, it just, it just makes it more inclusive. It makes beach cleans more accessible. And it'll just make them safer as well for, for all who participate in them. I think one of the things in the, in the Clean Coast community as such and those who care for our beaches is that if we're not picking it up here, it's going to be picked up somewhere else. I mean, we've picked up marine litter that's floated across the sea from France, from the UK. Marine litter and litter in general doesn't pick and choose where it's going to end up. It's just going to end up where it ends up. For any other clean coast groups around the country who want to invest in themselves and the work that they do, it's possible. It's there. Um when we started back in 2015, we were just cleaning Ballinamona Beach, which is 1.2 kilometers of the coastline. And before long, we were looking across at Hinch, And then we started looking to Gary Voe and Willing and Crennan and so on and so forth. And then we kind of ended up over in Pillmore and down Clay Castle Front Strand. It's one of those things that just snowballs and snowballs. And one of the joys that when we do a beach clean at the one hour beach clean, people know that it's going to start in time. It's going to end on time. Nobody minds giving up an hour because it's a great way to get activity in and get exercise. There's no membership fees. It's free to come along. You can fall in and fall out whenever you want to do it. But for other coastal groups, if you want to do more, you want to do less, you want to do whatever, just once you're enjoying it and in these times that for anybody who's visiting a beach, just what you bring with you, just bring home again. That's the real <laughs> important message because to use the analogy, if we were putting on a concert in Parky Creeves tomorrow or in Marley Park, there'd be port there'd be light, there'd be security, there'd be wardens, there'd be traffic management plans this summer our beaches are going to be getting similar crowds but it's not going to be getting the same sort of road traffic plans or portaloos or anything so we really have to mind our coast this year and wherever you do visit really important to whatever you bring with you bring home with you it's really about the, the leave no trace and, and only the footprints in the sand eat ethos this summer and to mind what we have
0: The founder of Clean Coast Balinamona Group, Prancius Otuma, talking to Justin Barr. An impressive voluntary effort. And there are other such groups around the country. They're part of the Clean Coast program, which can be contacted through the Ontoshka Environmental Education Unit. And that's at the email address cleancoats at eeu.ontoshka.org. again, that's cleancoast at And according to Ireland's First Ocean Citizen Survey, the Irish public believe more action needs to be taken to improve the health of the oceans. A thousand people completed the survey on current marine issues and priorities for the protection of the marine environment, which was carried out online last year by the European Commission and the Marine Institute as part of the EU's Mission for Healthy Oceans, Seas, Coastal and Inland Waters. The findings show that 85% of those taking part believe that it is human actions which are damaging the oceans, and that the health of the oceans and human health are inextricably connected. Protecting human life in danger on the seas is the task of the RNLI, whose lifeboats are coloured orange. Why that colour? The RNLI itself raised that question, to attract attention to its annual May Day campaign as Niamh Stevenson, Ireland Media Manager for the RNLI, explains.
2: It posed a simple question. Why are lifeboats orange? And of which it seems so obvious a topic that you ask yourself why you never thought to find out in the first place. I've worked for the RNLI for years and I've honestly never asked that question. Of course, the answer's obvious. It's so you can see them. But if that were so, why were they not orange or a similar colour from day one? because they weren't. And it was to be the 1950s before they found their true shade and stuck to it. Lifeboats started life in ultramarine blue in the 1800s before going a deeper shade of blue in 1923. Before the Oakley class lifeboat in 1958, lifeboats were painted blue, white and red, colours that were easy to get hold of. Then came the huge change in the 50s, taking the superstructure of the lifeboat from grey to safety orange. Simply put, the colour was more visible in the water. I've lost count of the number of times a casualty has spoken of their joy when they saw the orange lifeboat coming towards them. They always mention the colour. So now you know. Hopefully, you'll have no trouble seeing the ORNLI this month as the charity's annual fundraising appeal, Mayday, is in full swing. We try to bring the message of Mayday home to people by using some of the information gathered by our lifeboat crews in their returns of service. ORNLI rescue figures for the last year show that 53% of the 945 lifeboat launches took place in the months of June, July and August. That's not too surprising when we remember we were in lockdown for much of the year. Lifeboat crews remained busy, bringing 1,145 people to safety. 13 of those were classified as lives saved by the RNLI, meaning that without the actions of the lifeboat crew, they would not have survived their ordeal. Lifeboat crews are expecting an even busier summer this year with people staying home and holidaying in Ireland. Last summer, 747 people were aided by volunteer lifeboat crews during the summer months and that's an increase of 13% on the previous year. And lifeboats are launching to a range of activities. 22 lifeboat callouts were to swimmers in difficulty. Another 22 were to kayakers and canoeists, while 20 launches were for anglers. 15 were to jet ski-related incidents. And there were 26 launches to people who were walking or running near the coast. 55 callouts were to fishing vessels. For the causes related to the call-outs, machinery and equipment failure still accounts for a significant number, 196 in total. Grounding or stranding of vessels necessitated in 24 launches and getting swept or blown out to sea accounted for 26 call-outs. Figures also show that people becoming cut off by the tide is becoming more common with 20 lifeboat call-outs to people finding themselves stranded. You'll see a lot of safety messaging going out from different agencies over the summer and hopefully we'll have a safe season. So now that you know that lifeboats are orange and lifeboat volunteers are busy, the May Mayday campaign runs throughout the month of May. In doing the Mayday Mile, you can cover any distance for the charity in any way you want. Sign up at ornli.org forward slash support Mayday to register for your Mayday mile. And the colour you choose to do it in is entirely your own choice.
0: Now you know why lifeboats are coloured orange. Makes a lot of sense. Leave Stevenson of the RNLI there. Nautilus International, the Seafarers Professional Association, says that it's the goodwill of seafarers that has kept business trading during the COVID-19 pandemic. Writing in their journal, the Nautilus Telegraph magazine, the Association's General Secretary Mark Dickinson says ship owners and governments should remember that. I've no hesitation in adding that all of us should remember it. Without seafarers, we'd be in a rather difficult situation. Valencia Island has a nice little maritime heritage centre, well worth a visit if you're done, Carryway. And its committee writes to tell me that despite the setbacks of the pandemic, which restricted opening, we are still keeping going. Come visit our little museum, you won't be disappointed. It has, as you'd expect, quite a lot of memorabilia associated with the former cable station on the island and the laying of the transatlantic cable. That harkens back to past times, so we'll end this edition with the memories of a 93-year-old lifeboat man. I interviewed Jerry Murphy at his home in Court McSherry in West Cork in July of 1983 for a documentary I was making when in RTE about the lifeboat service. Jerry, who has died since, was the last surviving member of the Court McSherry lifeboat, a rowing and sailing boat which went to the rescue of the Lusitania passengers after the liner was sunk by a German submarine off the old head of Kinsale. The 106th anniversary of the sinking was on the 7th of May, and about which several listeners reminded me. In an interview which I've never forgotten, and which I've played before, but it's worth repeating at this time, Jerry Murphy, sitting in the summer sunshine at his home on the edge of Court McSherry Bay, painted the word picture of a sight he would never forget, when he and the lifeboat crew rowed out to the rescue. The
4: lifeboat was here down that chain down here and further down in the, in the point here. Well, it took us a good bit to go that distance, you know. There is eight miles from this to the old head. And we had to go close to that because she was, she was gone down south, south west from the old head. So that was a good long way east in the bay. And we had to go eight miles then beyond the old head before we come into the wreck. The first, the first thing we met was uh, a fisherman from the west there. He was out spilling Madden. He was towing in a, one of the lifeboats off of the Lusitania, after of the boat off the Lusitania, and there was about 50, pass- 50 in there that was taken in this lifeboat. And he was trying to tow him into court, When we arrived, we met him. We spoke to him, but he wouldn't give him up at all. The secretary wasn't aboard with us, and he said, we take these, but he said, I'm simply carrying him into Kottmachary to go away out. And they all are, they are screeched to us to go away out. There were plenty more outside. So we went away out then, and the next thing we met, was a man and he drowned. He was a traveller, so we picked him up. And the, when we got out then, it was nothing but all dead bodies floating around. So we were taking him up as good as we could and uh, putting him aboard a fishing boat that was there the fishing, two fishing boats that were around the place, they came in and they were they had their boat out, picking up the dead. So we wouldn't have much room for people because they we were taking them up and putting them up aboard this boat. They were from Cork. So when they got there, then them boats wouldn't stop there anymore. 40 fears they'd run into a wreck or anything and get wrecked themselves. So, when we were getting dark, they went away, and we had to give over, too. But all the place was covered with corpse floating.
0: A scene never to be forgotten, and an interview that I've never forgotten. RTE had it on its archive on the anniversary day also. And that was 106 years ago this year. And so we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show. Your views on the marine sphere are very welcome. Email to maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. The programme and podcasts come from the historic coastal and maritime town of Youghal on the East Cork coastline and CRY 104FM Youghal, And it's also broadcast in Cork on Bear Island Radio, UCC Radio and West Cork FM. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio, and in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM On Southwest Clare Radio, Radio of Boschkeen. On West Limerick 102 FM and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify and the TheMarineTimes.ie. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime community. The programme website is tomxweedymarine.ie or look up Maritime Ireland Radio Show. And that also now has a fortnightly blog of opinion, news and comment. The programme email address is Show at gmail.com. That's Show at gmail.com. Thanks to all listeners who contact us, and do please keep in touch. Our phone and text number, 0872 That's 0872 197. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Until our next programme, the usual wish of fair sailing.